What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Capo Podcast, coming to you from Camp Creek in Beaver County, Oklahoma. I wanted to do something different with this episode, not an audiobook this time, but uh, something more like a real podcast. I did episodes a little bit like this with the pilot, and then again with uh, that one episode about yesterday's dead. But for this one, I just want to branch out on the subject that just isn't just the book. Um, so far I'm having fun with the podcast thing. What I didn't really have figured out was when I started how difficult narration of a novel actually is. I've really gained a lot more respect for those people who read audiobooks. I guess that's why they usually get actors and professionals to do the recording. I think I'm getting a little better though. It is weird how often you stumble over words like once you... Once the mic goes on and you start, uh, even though I've written the books myself, I, I'm amazed at how often I kind of stumble over words that I myself have written. But uh, that's just how it goes, I guess. And once again, I guess that's why they get professionals to do that thing. Uh, but I'm trying to get better at that. I'm trying to get better at the dialogue, too. Uh, I'm trying not to get too over the top of the voices, but the first few episodes were pretty monotone throughout, and that didn't sound great to me either. Anyways, for at least the first part of the podcast, or most of the podcast, if not the whole thing, I want to talk about something other than the books. Uh, I'll probably talk a little bit about book two at the end, because the ideas we're going to talk about today on the podcast kind of dovetail into book two. But we'll just see where this goes. So instead of the narration, I'm just going to have myself a little smoke here. And I'm going to have myself a little drink. And we're going to just talk about uh, the podcast in general, who I am for people who don't know. And uh, we're going to talk about tyranny and savagery, which is going to be kind of the the primary ideas we're going to deal with. But first, I guess I need to tell you guys a little bit about myself because in case you're not the 99% of people listening to this thing that know me, I guess you probably need to know a little bit about who I am since this is a brand new podcast and you probably don't know. I'm from the Panhandle of Oklahoma. I'm a writer and I do a lot of day work cowboy stuff. But, uh, I also have to pay the bills, so I spend my days teaching school, high school. I teach English Lit, Philosophy, uh, Political Science at a tiny little high school here in the Panhandle of Oklahoma. And I've only been teaching for four years. Before that, I worked in logistics in the oil field. Shout out to the guys over at CP Energy, especially in dispatch. I worked at the corporate office in Edmond, Oklahoma for CP Energy. Before that, I was with Conquest RT doing logistics. Before that, I was still doing oil field stuff, selling drilling fluid for a company called Blue Sage Services in southern Oklahoma. Well, they're not headquartered in southern Oklahoma. They're headquartered here in the Panhandle, but I was working out of southern Oklahoma. Before that, I was working at a sporting goods store at the gun counter and archery department. Before that, I was selling hardware and parts to oil rigs in western Oklahoma. And before that, it was college and working in a sale barn and doing cowboy work. Now, I bring all that up to reinforce the point that I've not been a teacher 
all my life. And in all honesty, I think that's a good thing for someone in education because I've seen the real world in a way that someone who has been teaching their whole lives hasn't really seen it. Not that it makes me a better teacher, but it does give me a kind of different perspective that somebody who's been in education their entire life might not have. So I guess kind of what I'm getting at is I've done a whole bunch of different stuff. I've done everything from, you know, shovel shit, haul hay, build fence, punch cows, to washing oil rigs with a power washer, to selling tools to tool pushers, to selling drilling fluids to company men on rigs, to logistics, and then finally kind of to managing an entire department of a multi-million dollar company. Then I started teaching. Again, I'm not special. I'm not trying to like toot my own horn. And I, I'm just covering this stuff to kind of let everyone know kind of where I'm coming from as far as my perspective and what I think. I've lived in Oklahoma, Texas, and Utah. I've dipped my toes in a whole lot of different pools, and I've rubbed shoulders with everyone from cowboys and rig hands to teachers and millionaire CEOs. And I like to think that this has given me kind of a unique perspective on a wide range of kind of types of people. Who I am really is just an oaky hick who really likes reading, writing, history, philosophy, and literature. Uh, My only kind of vain indulgence that I'll allow is that I'm probably one of the only oaky hicks, as I said before, that's read a whole bunch of the classics. I am well-versed in Louis L'Amour and Shakespeare both, uh... And that does make me a little bit of an odd duck, I guess. Um, The greatest compliment I think I've ever gotten in my life is one of my cousins once told me I was the most educated redneck she'd ever met. Uh, Thanks, Hannah, if you're listening. Hopefully you are. Um, Anyways, so that's who I am. And that is kind of what this podcast is going to be outside of my books a a rule hick from Red America that is reasonably well-read. Other than a way to feed my own vanity, I guess, and give myself an excuse to drink whiskey and smoke by myself in my office, what I see this podcast becoming after the books or with the books is a way to educate a little, or just to talk about the things that interest me, that I think will interest other people. Uh, one of the biggest problems with teaching that I have is this this fact that probably 90% or more of the kids that you're teaching just don't care. They don't care about what they're learning. They don't care about literature. They don't, and honestly, like they don't want to learn. They don't care to learn. They don't want anything to do with it. And I kind of get that. That wasn't me when I was in high school, but I had a lot of friends that fit into that category that now that they're older, I don't think fit that same category anymore. Um, Adults even, it seems, don't really want to learn. I mean, some folks do, but most don't. And I think that our society kind of incentivizes this to an extent like if you if you want to know something you can just google it why read a whole news article when you can read a 
a headline or you can watch a 10-second BuzzFeed clip, right? In our society, even if you are a mouth-breathing retard who refuses to learn anything, there are so many social safety nets in place that it's very unlikely you're going to die from the stupid, right? It wasn't always like this. Back in, I guess we'll say back in the day, people won Darwin Awards if they were too stupid. Like there was there was someone waiting in the wings. There wasn't someone waiting in the wings to support you for being a dumbass. And I think that our society nowadays incentivizes uh, being a dumbass. Dumbassery, I guess I'll say. Uh, I think a lot of people, though, after they get a little older... They start to hunger for an education later in life, in their 20s and 30s. And I think this is, this is kind of natural, and it maybe says something about the, the problem with either, number one, the problem with our education system, or number two, the problem with uh, we don't require our children to grow up at the same age that our ancestors were kind of incentivized to grow up. And... I, I mean, I was kind of this way. Uh, in school, I kind of just learned what I needed to pass and then pretty much forgot most of it, and especially math. I, don't, I can't do math at all, to be honest with you guys. But as I got older, I became more interested in stuff that I'd kind of learned and then forgotten. And I realized that I actually wanted to learn things. And when I started teaching... I started to relearn a lot of things we'd gone over when I was in high school. And I had this kind of newfound respect for those things. And I understood them on a much deeper level than I had before. And I also kind of realized that a lot of the teachers I had when I was in high school honestly did not understand a lot of the stuff we read, especially just from a reading comprehension level, for example, like, Shakespeare. We read Shakespeare in high school, and I remember reading Shakespeare in high school, but what I don't remember is any of our teachers kind of explaining to us what was going on in the play, in Shakespeare, uh, and then I started teaching, and I started explaining it, and I got to the realization that, holy cow, Shakespeare tells a whole bunch of dick jokes and sex jokes, and I don't know if freshmen really can handle that sort of thing, but, uh, I don't know. Anyways, that's what I kind of realized once I started teaching. That's not just dick jokes, but it is something deeper than that. The deeper ideas that uh, Shakespeare and Milton and Orwell deal with, you read them in high school, but in my experience, our teachers did not really fully explain them to us. And I feel like that was, I feel like that was kind of a disservice that was done to me and the other kids my age, but quite honestly, if, if even if I'd had a teacher that explained it to me and my friends, most of us probably wouldn't have given a shit, to be straight with you. Uh, but now, I think a lot of people my age and older, they have, that, they have that same reaction that I did. So I thought a podcast might be a good way to kind of talk to people who actually want to learn stuff. I, I mean, I think most of the people who are going to listen to my podcast are are people my age, 
especially even like friends that I went to high school with that were sitting right beside me in high school classes that heard like kind of bits and pieces of these things and never really kind of digested them in the way they probably should have. And if they would have, or even if today they want to, learning them now will probably serve them better in their late 20s, early 30s, maybe even 40s than if they had learned them in school. Because you have a newfound respect and you have a a new want to to learn these things. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm setting out to do with the podcast outside of the books is give a give a sort of grown-up version of some of the lectures that I give to the high school kids because, honestly, a lot of them don't give a shit and don't want to pay attention to those lectures when I give them, even though I'm standing up there thinking that this is some of the best information you can possibly give. So that's what we're setting out to do here with the podcast outside of the the book realm. And that's what we're going to start with today, and I want to talk about history today. Specifically, I want to talk about kind of two big ideas of tyranny and savagery. And going into this, my degree is in history and political science, so it kind of makes sense that I start with this. Uh, that's kind of, that's what I majored in, in college. That's what interests me. And then after I got a little older, I kind of graduated into more of like, I liked history still, but I was very interested in anthropology and morality and philosophy. And I kind of am interested in how all those things tie together. But for this kind of podcast, I want to talk about this focus of the idea of tyranny and savagery. And I'm interested in kind of these big, all-encompassing ideas and concepts that contain a lot in them, much more so than I am kind of specific historical events or historical figures. Now, this is probably because I don't have the patience or attention span to really dig in and focus on a single historical event or a person very often. I do that every once in a while. There are some historical figures I find very interesting. Uh, just a couple of a couple examples would be like Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Tom Horn. But not very often do I find someone in history that I just find very very interesting. I want to focus on same thing with events. I just I'm not into focusing deeply on events. I I really am more interested in big ideas that kind of cover a whole bunch of stuff. I like to read history in the same way I like to read literature. History is this huge story of humanity. And like a good book or fiction, it contains wisdom and moral lessons and enlightenment. It isn't about memorizing specific dates or being able to name all the presidents in order. That's not what history is. And maybe that's just because I'm not smart enough to memorize a whole bunch of things such as that. But I think the overall story of these things is always more enlightening and important, especially than specific battles or leaders. Uh, 
and I guess it's because fiction fiction is a form of distilled truth. The stories of fiction may not be true in the, in and of themselves, but good fiction is true in that the ideas themselves are true, especially what they have to say about the human condition and human nature. So obviously, the entirety of human history, the human story, human existence, this is a topic that's way too big for a single podcast, obviously. So I want to focus on just these couple ideas and talk about tyranny and savagery and how those things apply to human history, anthropology, and political science to a degree. So when it comes to human civilization, societies exist and have existed forever between this spectrum, ranging from on one side tyranny and on the other side savagery. Tyranny being this absolute unjust form of government where a monarch or an oligarchy or a theocracy holds complete iron-fisted control over the society. Justice doesn't really exist or it's handed out in an unfair manner based upon the whims of the politics of the ruling class. The lower classes are reduced to a form of servitude and everything generally just sucks. Think of the the Soviet Union or North Korea or those would be modern examples. Or for ancient examples like the, the Egyptian pharaohs, the Chinese, the Japanese dynasties, the medieval kings. Um, it's this iron fist of government and the, the incompetence of bureaucracy and central planning. Any dissent of the ruling structure is dealt with harshly, unfairly, and violently. And then you have the, the other side of it, savagery. On the other hand, is this complete absence of any structure whatsoever. There's no real law to speak of. Uh, Usually the society consists of tribal groups warring against one another, conquering, blood feuds, revenge killings, and like pillaging are the hallmarks of the society. And for this you can think of uh, most native tribes in early America or Germanic and Celtic tribes in Europe, uh, or places, those would be ancient examples, and then modern examples would be places like uh, Somalia, or other poor African countries, or Middle Eastern countries, or South American countries like uh, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala. It's it's like dog-eat-dog, and the rules are centered around a sort of social Darwinism, Whoever's the biggest, strongest, and meanest tribe will run things until it comes their time to be kind of eaten by the next strong group that arises. Now, for almost the entirety of human history, you as an individual would have existed under either savagery or tyranny. One or the other. There are so few examples to the contrary that they're vanishingly rare. So if you were just the little guy, if you were just Joe Sixpack, your existence was probably going to be void of all these things that we take for granted in modern Western society. 
So freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, the freedom to carry arms, these things didn't exist for almost all of human history for the common man. So why do we have those things today in the West? Well, the answer is it took us a very long time to get here. Um, And it started with Judeo-Christian moral ideas. And a lot of people in modern society... Christianity is kind of so kind of on the back burner and forgotten that a lot of people don't really quite understand this. They think that ideas on morality arise from just just somewhere within themselves. But the truth is that the, the Ten Commandments are not this given thing that everyone has always pretty much agreed to, especially when it came to people who were not considered part of your group or your tribe or your nation, the Ten Commandments didn't exist. Uh, People have been fine with, like, killing and raping and pillaging as long as it was not a member of your own tribe or your own group. And this was truly kind of the revolutionary nature of Jesus and his philosophy because the even, even the Jews weren't completely on board with this idea. And that's why they they tried to trap Jesus in this question of who is your neighbor? And, of course, Jesus' answer, because your neighbor is who you are supposed to uphold the Ten Commandments to, and Jesus' neighbor, he says, is, is everyone. It's not just your tribe. It's not just your literal neighbor. It is everyone. It's every human your your neighbor is everyone. And that's really what separates this Judeo-Christian idea and these Judeo-Christian cultures from other, what we would consider, civilized countries. Say like uh, the ancient Greeks. So the ancient Greeks definitely had moral ideas about respecting the gods and duty and responsibility and what it meant to be heroic and virtuous. But you can see if you read through stuff like the Iliad and the Odyssey and their and Greek literature, their respect to morality kind of went by the wayside when they were dealing with other tribes or other peoples who were not Greeks. In the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, they're sacking the city of Troy. They are raping, they're pillaging, they're murdering, they're stealing and it's not really seen as a negative thing according to their morality because, well, the Trojans and these other kind of groups, they're not Greeks. So they are enemies of the Greeks and thus not they don't really fall under the morality of the Greeks. So love thy enemy, which comes from Jesus, is this very revolutionary, revolutionary idea that really changes... Christian and Western civilizations, and granted, it takes a long time to get there, but you can't deny that it is a it is a seed that is planted by this philosophy of Jesus that really kind of changes things. Now, that being said, speaking of the Greeks, though, they are another piece to this puzzle of how we got here, and here being the place you live, Western civilization, 
modern America for almost all of you. And I say almost all of you because I saw on my like on my podcast website the other day somebody from Italy tuned in, which I think is very cool. But anyways, you are living in Western civilization, which means you live under this umbrella that I'm talking about. And your ideas, whether or not you understand that, come from stuff like Judeo-Christian morality and this second foundational stone, which is Greek philosophical ideas, cultural ideas, ideas on governance, um, democracy. The idea of democracy comes directly from the Greeks. Um, And then they had other ideas on philosophy. You have stories written by Homer. You have political treatises written by, you know, Plato talking about Socrates. And then you have Aristotle with his philosophy of the the two-part soul. And later on, after the Greeks, you have the Romans who even build more off of the Greeks. And you have Roman philosophical ideas. You get Marcus Aurelius. You get Cicero. You get uh, Brutus and Cassius. And you have these romantic ideas of the Roman Republic. So that's really the second foundational stone is this Greek and Roman culture, philosophy, and ideas on government especially. So we're left with these first two pillars of our Western foundation being the moral ideas from the Jews and the Christian, and then the philosophical and especially especially government ideas from the Greeks and the Romans. And off of these two pillars is built more and greater ideas that come along in Europe after the fall of Rome. So after the collapse of Rome in around, I don't know, we'll call it 400 to 500 AD, Rome collapses and we go into what is called by a lot of people in history of the Dark Ages. And for a lot of our history, this is centered in Europe. And in Europe, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, you have the Catholic Church that comes into and up to power. And you have great Catholic thinkers like Thomas Aquinas that add to the foundation of our philosophical thought. And you have the Church in Europe that acts as this sort of light that shines through the Dark Ages where nothing else is really going on as far as uh, learning. You have these little monasteries in Europe that become kind of islands in the middle of the darkness where learning and writing and education kind of survive. And that lasts from the between the fall of Rome and the Middle Ages for most of Europe. Not everywhere, but for for most of Europe, the church and these little monasteries are the only place where where academia survives. Then a little bit later, along comes Martin Luther in Germany, and you have the Reformation of the church, the emergence of Protestantism, and the struggle within the Christian church against the the corruption that was plaguing the Catholic Church. Now this sparks a whole bunch of, you know, violence and bloodshed between the factions that formed, 
but it also tested and sharpened Christian moral thought in a way that uh, some other religions never went through. So growth doesn't happen without you know some change and some challenge and some friction. And this is what you get out of the out of the Reformation, out of Martin Luther. You get this uh, this butting heads and this friction within Christianity that each group kind of sharpens the other as far as their moral thought and their theology. And then after that comes the the Renaissance, uh, and we start to refocus on Greek and Roman art and culture and uh, architecture. Uh, And that goes on for a while. And then you get the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is really where stuff takes off. You have an explosion all over Europe that culminates in all of these massive philosophical, scientific, and social changes to the landscape of Europe. You have new ideas on human rights. You have arts and culture flourishing. You have uh, philosophers like um, Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes and Voltaire and all these guys rethink human philosophy and morality and even human consciousness and reality itself. You have uh, Shakespeare, who improves on Greek and Roman moral lessons through tragedy on stage. He, he's writing from a new Christian perspective, and he's using this tried-and-true vehicle of drama to teach moral lessons. You have Sir Francis Bacon, who invents the English essay. You have Adam Smith, and he comes up with this idea of the free market economy, the invisible hand, capitalism. You have John Locke, who comes up with the ideas of classical liberalism. You have Edmund Burke as a, as a voice of uh, reason and conservatism. You have the, the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, assembly, petition, religion. You get natural rights and natural law. You get life, liberty, and property. And then all of these ideas culminate in this huge event known as the American Revolution and the establishment of the United States. The Founding Fathers establish what could be considered the culmination of all of the, the Enlightenment. They use uh, classical liberal ideas from Locke. They use the Enlightenment. They read all the classics. They study the Greeks and the Romans. They even borrow the architectural ideas when they begin building their capital government buildings. I mean, this is why the Capitol building and the White House are Greco-Roman architecture. That wasn't an accident. That's something that the founders of the country and the people who came after them early on in the country, they they did that on purpose. Uh, And so after the Enlightenment and the Age of Revolution and the founding of America, suddenly you have a whole spectrum that kind of spreads out the scale between tyranny and savagery. And we start building societies that are purposefully balanced 
between these two very negative extremes of the human condition. And they are purpose-built to stave off both extremes. And we build them that way on purpose because we understand that neither tyranny nor savagery is a good thing. But if we balance it out and expand this spectrum to find something in the middle ground, we can, we can create a society that is far better than anything that's ever existed. And that's what we do. Because, because what comes of this, what, be, what becomes of the Age of Revolution and the Revolution of America... In, in a lesser degree, the Revolution of France, it had a lot of negative aspects that the American Revolution didn't. But, but what comes of all this? Well, it's basically the entirety of modern civilization. Because built on all of these foundations that we talked about, built on Judeo-Christian moral ideas, Greek and Roman philosophy, and then finally European history and the Enlightenment philosophies, humanity achieves everything that it has never achieved before science and technology advancement philosophical and moral advancement uh, economic advancement the industrial revolution the scientific revolution all of these new inventions all of it all of it happens because of the enlightenment and the formation of this this new country that is america and because of all of it, the the quality of life, because all of that aside, like if you're just kind of measuring what is good objectively, you would you would go to the quality of life of the average human person. And because of all of this advancement, the quality of life goes up so insanely high that today, today in modern America, even the poorest, most destitute, lowest member of the society live lives that are, that are more safe and more comfortable than almost everyone who has ever existed before the year 1900. If you're a member of the let's say the american middle class today in 2022 if you're a member of the middle class you live a life that was not even dreamt of by the richest monarchs in basically all of human history automobiles air travel cell phones there's food everywhere government assistance the internet you have basically a magical device in your pocket at all times that contains the collective knowledge of the human race. And with it, you can speak to anyone on the face of the earth. And what are you using it for? You, well, you're looking, at, uh, you're looking at porn and you're looking at memes and you're scrolling social media. And you, you aren't even thinking about the level of technology that it represents. And I think that is something that is uh, kind of depressing, if you want to know the truth. Now, 
Tyranny and savagery are so far removed from modern Western societies that we have to invent problems for ourselves. For crying out loud, one of our biggest problems in America is obesity. And I don't think people quite understand how insane that is from a from a perspective of history. Because people don't understand how many people used to starve to death, historically speaking, or freeze to death during the winter. For most of human history, human existence was a struggle that most of us cannot imagine due to our kind of plush, comfortable lives. And I think it's odd that they they probably had way less problems with mental health than your average cross-section of 100 Americans would today. Now, I think the fact that we're so far removed from tyranny and savagery is a great thing as a, as a prospect because it's, it's what everyone would want, especially for their children. But it's also, I think, impossible to ignore the fact that our comfortable lives are making us softer and more foolish than previous generations. And when I say foolish, I mean less wise and more arrogant. We scoff at our ancestors, and we think ourselves smarter and more enlightened than they were. We judge them, we we call them stupid and evil and well, I don't, but a lot of people would say they're just old racist, right? We, we've got to tear down their statues. You can't quote Thomas Jefferson. Don't you know he owned slaves? I mean, that means everything he said was wrong. You can't read Shakespeare. He's an old white guy. Uh, you need to read authors who aren't privileged. Here, this is a novel written by a... I don't know, a, a, a bipolar, gay, Afro-Asiatic trans woman that explores the evils of the patriarchy and the glories of communism. Like, that's the kind of crap that you get in higher education that these days, especially in the, in the Ivy League, but even in small state schools. Um, e- even my tiny little state college that I went to in, I graduated in 2012, from Southwestern Oklahoma State University. And even that college has become this this place where where you're you're almost not allowed to learn about these these truths of western civilization and instead we're going to hand you some goofy bullshit novel that some, you know, trans communist Afro woman who is gay wrote because of you know uh, the patriarchy it's 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 ridiculous and you're not allowed to say that America is this positive influence on the world anymore because everybody will will shout you down and oh it's it's stolen land they they murdered all the native americans uh we need to forget about everything since 70, 1776, uh, basically just do away with all the inventions, right? Because those were old right, white racists that invented everything since 1776. 
we're standing on the shoulders of giants and we think we're tall. Or it's it's even worse than that. We think we need to chop the giant's legs off in the name of, uh, it's not even equality anymore, right? It's equity. We need to chop the giant's legs off in the name of equity. Because after all, Western civilizations and Western cultures are, are no better than any other culture, right? Uh, all cultures have value. Well, except for Americans, because America has no culture, people say. I've, I've literally heard people say that. And, well, also, besides American culture, you know, English culture is also problematic. Um, you know what? Actually, all white cultures are bad, and actually, they're way worse than Native American culture or African cultures, because those cultures are way better you know this building is racist it's greedy it's capitalist it's uh it's christian boo we've got to tear it down because it's not who we are anymore i mean these are the things you hear in higher education in 2022 and a lot of people especially a lot of conservatives i've found and if you haven't figured this out by now i tend to lean to the right and you can dislike me for that if you want. I really don't give a shit. But I tend to lean to the right. And a lot of people on the right have this misconception that all of this happened with Obama. It's like, oh, Obama started all of this. And it's like, nah, that is not where this started. Um, it's so, and I think the reason conservatives want to believe that is because it makes it a a little easier to it makes it a little easier to swallow, and it makes it a little easier to you think oh if this only started you know a generation ago maybe we can kind of fight back against it, but they don't want to really acknowledge the truth of where all of this comes from, because the truth of all of this goes much further back. And when you start talking about it, it makes people uncomfortable because then they they come to this realization that, oh, this is much older than even I am. Because in all honesty, all of this goes back to the early 1900s and the beginning of the, the progressive movement in America. Because all of this grows out of the communist movement of the the 1800s, the late 1800s. We've been since the early 1900s in the in the beginning of this progressive movement. We've been like angry, screaming toddlers, and we've been kicking at the foundational pillars that hold up our whole civilization. Now. Luckily, these pillars that we are every day smashing our toddler feet into, they are, they are wide, and they are strong, and they are, by definition, foundational. But that doesn't mean that they're indestructible. And I think this is something people do not understand. If we keep kicking at our foundational things that undergird our civilization and those foundational things are judeo-christian moral ideas greek and roman philosophy and european history and the enlightenment and if you don't understand that all three of those foundational things 
are being kicked at by angry, screaming toddlers at this point. I don't know what to do for you. But uh, if we keep kicking at them and eroding them year after year and decade after decade, after enough time, those foundational pieces of our society will fall down. And if you kicked the pillars out of a out of a house. If you if you kick down the structure, everything else falls down too. If we kick down these foundational pillars, we will have destroyed the things that made our whole spectrum of societies in the West possible. Democracy, uh, republican governance, the parliamentary systems, all of these things that we've become accustomed to will not be an option without the foundation that they're built on, which will bring us inevitably back to really these only two extremes of options, which are tyranny and savagery. This is why any time a, a socialist or communist revolution actually succeeds it goes directly to tyranny because the the foundations your civilization rests on cannot if you kick them down communism or socialism neither one can hold up the foundation that supports democracy or republics or parliament they cannot hold them up because they are not foundational. They have not been there long enough. They do not... Communism and socialism are just oligarchies. They are indistinguishable from tyranny by design. And anybody who actually understands communism or socialism, anybody who actually understands how they work they understand that they are just a form of tyranny and oligarchy. And the, re- the thing that makes them so reprehensible is they, they say the exact opposite to the people they are trying to, to rule. They tell the people they're trying to rule, oh, this is a great, you know, it will be a, a workers' revolution and you'll be, you'll be out from under the thumb of the bourgeoisie and you will be a workers' republic. And everybody who actually understands communism absolutely knows that's bullshit. But they use the people who don't understand that's bullshit to prop it up because they know if they get in control, they can be a part of that oligarchy. So without our foundational kind of pillars, we revert back to this, this, this tyranny or savagery. There is no longer a middle ground of, you know, democracy, the parliament, the, the republican system of government, the, the, P, the civilizations that rest in between the two extremes of tyranny and savagery, they just do not exist if they are not built on the foundations of Western civilization. And I don't understand why this is difficult for people to grasp, but it seems to be difficult for people to grasp. And we still, yet we still, just kick at these pillars 
of our civilization not really understanding what those pillars are or what they are holding up. And when we finally kick them down, we're going to be left in either a, a, a civilization, a society that is either living under tyranny or living under savagery. And either one of those is not going to be a good place to find yourself if you're just a regular uh, person. Now, personally, I don't know which one would be better to live under, but I would, I would rather live under savagery, in, in my personal opinion, even if it's more violent, even if it's worse, because I would rather be free than, than be under the thumb of a tyrant. And I think a lot of, I really think a lot of Americans also feel this way. I don't think it's as many Americans as I thought it was two years ago in 2020, after the, all the COVID bullshit that's happened. But I still think there's, an, there's enough Americans who would rather be savages than live under tyranny that that's probably where we would end up. And, uh... I don't know, we're we're 50 minutes in, we're almost an hour in, and this is really my long, drawn-out segue into an introduction for the second book, because book two deals with these, theme, these same themes and ideas, and that's why it's called Tyrants and Savages, and hopefully this, this first 50 minutes is enough to kind of hook you into reading book two, even if you didn't read book one, to be honest with you, because, uh, all right, for the rest of the podcast, I'm going to kind of give an overview of the plot of the second book. So if you're somebody who's like not interested in all in the books, you can just check out because I'm going to talk about the book for the rest of the time. But uh, I'm not going to give any spoilers or anything. I'm just going to talk about the books and specifically book two. And honestly, just from my point of view as a writer, I think that that book one is the least of the the trilogy, the three books I've written. And, you know, this makes sense because it was the first thing that I'd written that was longer than a short story. And when I started it, I still had no freaking idea what I was doing with my writing. So getting into book two, I had a much better idea of what I was doing. I had a better idea on expanding the story and... Uh, book two expands on the story. I began writing book two back in, oh God, what was it? It was 2013, I think. Uh, my wife and I were living in Utah. She was going to Utah State University after she graduated from Southwestern Oklahoma State. And I was just kind of along for the ride. I was looking for a job. Uh, both of us were kind of just honeymooning it through our first year of blissful marriage. Um, so while we were there, we spent a lot of time traveling to state and national parks, hiking, camping, doing all the kinds of stuff that we really enjoy doing. And a lot of that gives me inspiration for not so much the second book, but the, the third book, and this has also kind of been the interesting thing about this book series, when I, when I wrote book one, 
it was I was still living in Oklahoma and I was writing about, you know, Galveston, Texas and Houston and these places I'd kind of visited on vacation but didn't know a whole lot about. And then I, I'm writing book two and book two takes place mostly in Texas and Colorado. And then finally when I get to book three, a lot of book three takes place in Utah and these national parks I went to. But it was after I had moved back away from there. But anyway, I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, but while I was there, I had a hard time finding a job at first. And uh, me and my wife, we both went to work for this call center because it was the only place that was hiring. And it was a it was a payday loan company, which should have been my first hint as to why it was the only job in town that was just hiring anybody who'd walk in the door, like I was. Like, I walked in the door, and they were like, yeah, you're hired. And that should have been a red flag right there. But, uh, so I worked in collections for a couple months, and it basically consisted of making making cold calls to people who had taken out and then defaulted on payday loans and if you can imagine the type of person that would do such a thing, you can probably imagine the kind of responses you would get if you called them every hour of every day over and over and over until you got money out of them. So you can guess the kind of person that takes out a pay loan just in the first place. Now try to imagine the kind of person that takes out a pay loan and then defaults on it. Um, and... <laughs> Honestly, looking back, it probably influenced my writing just a little bit when it came to uh, the general pessimism required to to imagine this this dystopian world where most of the population consists of of drug-addled, slobbering savages. Because quite honestly, that's who you're dealing with. The people who take out payday loans and default on them are literally drug-addled, slobbering savages. Um... So I worked there for two months, and that was enough for me, and I quit. And I decided to take three months, and I, my, my plan was I'm going to take three months, and I'm going to write as if I have a full-time job. I'm going to write at least eight hours a day, and I'm going to treat it as a full-time job, and I'm just going to kind of see what happens. And I was naive and stupid, and I thought it would be fun, and I did it. And out of that three-month time period came about probably the 75% of book two of yesterday's, or of uh, A Long Way to Zion. Book two is called Tyrants and Savages. Book one was Yesterday's Dead. And as the title suggests, Yesterday's Dead is, the main theme of the book is the setting of the stage. It's this dystopian world you have the beginning with the headless lady of the headless lady liberty in new york city burning in the background and you have the chaos and then you have uh, the buzzard as this sort of poetic symbol that's replaced the bald eagle of america you have this uh, this general vision of what america was in a metaphorical yesterday of history and now that is that's dead and gone and within that setting, you have the the relationship between Noah and Evelyn, and basically just a madhouse of running action 
until the credits roll on book one. And if you finished book one, you you can kind of see that. It's just this this constant state of action with just a, a dash of Noah and Evelyn's relationship. And it's kind of a fun story, but its its focus is very small and it's centered on this this one group of travelers. And it isn't until the very last chapter of book one that you get to see another storyline start to develop through the eyes of uh, Arthur Rowland and Evelyn's brother, Adam. Now, book two is called Tyrants and Savages. And like Yesterday's Dead, the title of the book is, is giving you a general overview of what the entirety of book two is about in a larger sense. So instead of a single thread story, like book one is, book two spiderwebs out. The chapters become shorter, there's more of them, and we bounce all over the world meeting new characters everywhere we go. So I'm going to kind of go into kind of all of these new characters or all these new groups that we meet. And the, the first group you meet in book two is the the sinister and you know mysterious GNU that the the rumors start at the end of book one in the last chapter. So in chapter one of book two, we go back to what we call the old world. We really go back to the prologue of book one, and we meet Rebecca Sanger, and Rebecca Sanger is this inner party member. She's a, a true believer in the cause of the party, of the GNU. And while most of the party and the whole world, for that matter, is going up into flames, she is escaping with a small group of inner party members. And we get to see the world through the eyes of Rebecca, and we get to know what she knows and think what she thinks. And everything the party is doing they are doing for this idea of a a collective uh, humanity. It's obviously a, a progressive political idea that deviates from the, the classical liberalism and the thinking of the foundations of, you know, I- individual freedom and natural law and natural rights, you know, granted by God, which are the bedrock of the American founding. Uh, I start the very first chapter with a with a Woodrow Wilson quote, and I do that very purposefully because the GNU is this progressive dream that has been fully realized for the the nightmare it would eventually and inevitably become, e- even if it starts as some sort of positive you know, high-minded idea of doing what is best for the collective instead of the individual or or changing human nature to make humanity better. It's always going to inevitably fail because human nature isn't malleable. It's not something you can change. And if you, if you try to do it, you're going to end up in a bad place. So in this dystopian world, you know, the progressives have finally figured out that there's this fact about human nature that human nature can't be changed and human nature is kind of static and unmalleable. 
But instead of saying something like, uh, I don't know, oopsies, we forgot. We like we were wrong about that. We we forgot to kind of pay attention to our ancestors. Instead of that, we say, okay, if this is the truth, we're going to we're going to keep charging ahead and we're going to try to use this knowledge to our advantage. And their plan is to revert humanity to a to a primitive lifestyle by stripping away the positive aspects of human nature and by feeding negative aspects of human nature. They are trying to undo uh, the industrialization of human human civilization. They're trying to undo the Enlightenment. They're trying to undo all of Western civilization because they see it as this as this mistake that brought about you know man-made climate change. So that's how you see the G and U in the beginning. And then the next people we get to meet are New Hope. And we get to meet New Hope through the eyes of another character. And I don't want to name him because that might spoil some fun for people who are going to listen to the novel. But you see New Hope as this this oppositional force to the GNU. The GNU has this plan of depopulating the planet by releasing an engineered virus. And this engineered virus has a 90% death rate. And New Hope, even though they're isolationist and they're hands-off and they don't want to mess with anybody, they understand the gravity of this virus and they, they make it their mission to stop the GNU from achieving their goal. Now, because you, New Hope is so small, they have to use their intelligence and technology and kind of, they have to use clandestine means to accomplish their goal. They can't really go to war with the GNU openly, and they don't really want to. Uh, they succeed this goal, like they, they succeed in their goal during the during the old world, during the chaos. And they're responsible for saving a lot of the lives of the Earth uh, from the virus back, you know, a hundred years before the main storyline begins. But they can't really do anything about the, the chaos itself because after they stop the virus, like, society itself still collapses, but without, you know... With that, instead of billions of people being murdered, it's more like, you know, hundreds of thousands or, or millions that are swept up in the chaos. Now, all of this you see through the, through the eyes of the GNU and this guy from New Hope within chapter one of the second book. And then next, in chapter two, we'll fast forward and we're back in the present and what we call the new world of the novel, which is about 2180. And in a sense, we're right back where we started. The GNU is added again. This is where book one ended. The GNU has reemerged. The plague that we met in book one is the virus. And it's taken them a hundred years to kind of regroup and progress toward it. And remember it, but the the GNU has released this virus on the world now. 
and again New Hope is forced to answer, or at least some of them are. So it's been a hundred years now, and most of New Hope's population refuses to believe that the GNU has returned. In a couple of generations of full isolation, they've gotten very comfortable, and they've become ex- uh, they've become obsessed with this idea of a utopian society that they're going to create, you know, isolated from the rest of the wor- rest of the world. They believe if they can set up this new colony, there won't be any need for war anymore. Some of them even think that the military needs to be abolished and done away with because they believe so deeply that they're going to create this utopian society where nothing bad's going to happen. But the Ravens, as kind of this bulwark of caution and common sense, understand now, at the the beginning of Book 2, that the GNU has returned, and they are back, and the GNU is already at war with New Hope, whether or not New Hope wants to wants to admit it. And as the GNU grows in power and influence and tech, uh, the Ravens and a lot of people from Ho- New Hope realize that the GNU is never going to allow New Hope to exist as a as a challenge to it. And so begins this this inner political st- struggle within New Hope, and they're going to argue and struggle with this idea of whether or not to go to war. And in the meantime, they release their own cure for the virus, which of course they've had in their back pocket, you know, for a hundred years since the chaos. They've kind of had it. Uh, You'll get to finally see what New Hope is through the eyes of this character named Kit Larson, who is the He's like the top-ranking military commander of New Hope. You get to see it as a technologically advanced floating island. It's a, it's a thriving island city and a place that's obsessed with philosophy and morality and culture and art and science. It's, it's this tiny kind of candle, this leftover of Western civilization in this huge darkness of the world. And when we see it, the the refugee ships from around the from around the world are just starting to arrive. And the refugees represent this kind of reality of the new world that New Hope hasn't seen firsthand yet. They've read about history, they've read about the GNU and they, they have this understanding of kind of the darkness of humanity, but they haven't seen it up close yet. And when the refugees arrive, it kind of changes the political landscape of New Hope. And oblivious to all of this, Evelyn and Noah are on their way to Sitka, Alaska. Now, they have no idea that New Hope is not going to be there. They they really don't have a concept of how long the journey is. They're, they're too naive to understand the scope of the journey they've kind of undertaken. And this is why in book one, and even the beginning of book two, 
they don't, they're not sure if they're going to have to find a place to stay for the winter or not. Like, they don't know if they're going to have to winter anywhere or not. And us, as kind of an outside observer, are saying, well, of course you're going to have to find somewhere to winter if it's about to be winter because you're not going to be able to make it from, let's say, the panhandle of Texas to Sitka, Alaska within, you know, a month's journey in this world. But they don't quite know that. So that's why you kind of find them kind of wandering in the wilderness and finally realizing, oh, they're going to have to winter somewhere. Uh, and even if they do make it, uh, there's this this understanding that the journey they're on, their destination is this dead end that holds no real hope for them. So we meet Noah and Evelyn again in chapter 4 of the second book. And they've reached depopulation zone 109. And it's a section of the country that was fenced off decades before and settlement in the area was forbidden. Uh, You can think of like the craziest, you know, Agenda 21 conspiracy stuff you can imagine. That's pretty much what went on. So rural people were forced to move into suburbs and cities under threat of jail or even violence. And then finally, war was waged against people who refused to leave. Uh, Of course, this causes like commercial agriculture to fail on this huge, massive scale. And this in turn causes like huge famines that make... uh, that make the communist famines in like the Soviet Union and China and North Korea, they look tame in historical comparison in the in the fiction of the book. But I I open the chapter with this this song or this poem, and it's meant to explain the history of this through the eyes of the people who refused to leave the depopulation zone. And in the book, the depopulation zone basically begins uh you know 30 40 miles north of Amarillo and extends north through the the panhandles of Texas, Oklahoma and up into southwestern Kansas and southeastern Colorado and you know western or eastern New Mexico. So that's this gigantic depopulation zone where nobody's allowed to to live in the old world. Um and then, as they travel, Noah and Evelyn start to get kind of hints of what happened in the old world through evidence they find in this depopulation zone and through a book that Noah finds in in a place in the kind of like uh, the compound, the first compound they get to in this contraband locker. It's at this point in the story where Evelyn is starting to teach Noah to read. Now, this is a very small thing in book two, but it's really going to start to drive Noah's character in the end of book two and then going into book three. And through reading and learning, he he kind of becomes more of a capable person. Uh, through violence and struggle and through learning, he grows up into this man 
and he he leaves his kind of adolescent bandit self until like in book three he gets to the point where he does he doesn't even recognize himself anymore by book three uh he reaches this sort of enlightenment about human nature and about religion and the world and he kind of becomes this this full character development and it shows the on a larger scale it's this reemergence of learning art morality culture and noah is just kind of a representation of a kind of new renaissance that takes place by the end of the third book but he he's nowhere near there in the second book. This is just kind of a planted seed in book two and chapter four. Uh, but that's not all the new characters you get to meet in book two or the new ideas. We also move into the the Rocky Mountains, and we meet two more large groups of people that would be the they'll become pivotal to the storyline. So these two groups are locked in this long generational war that's been going on forever it's been going on so long that like ammunition and gunpowder have been used up in the area in which these people live they've reverted to a sort of medieval warfare at this point and they fight with swords and spears and bows and they have you know pitched battles on the floor of this of the valley which is the the wet mountain valley in colorado and this setting is fun for me to write about because growing up, I spent a I spent a lot of time in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in Colorado. My dad had a cabin up in Westcliff, Colorado, and my uncle lived up there while I was little. Uh, because it's kind of seared into my brain, I liked using it as a place that I could visualize for the story. So the wet mountains are on the east. And the Sangres are on the west. And in the middle is this beautiful valley that looks out to the Sangre de Cristos on a bunch of 14,000 foot peaks. It's a very neat little town and it's definitely worth a vacation if you've never been. But uh, anyways, when I was little, we would always hike up to the top of Music Pass and up the side of Marble Mountain. And when I was very young, I liked to imagine what a sort of medieval fantasy castle would look like in the the Sand Creek Valley below Music Pass. And so that's where my idea came from for these these characters in book two called the Valleymen and their hidden castle and town in the mountains. So the Valleymen in the book are are they're descended from people who fought in the second american civil war and they lost uh they hid in the mountains and they kind of endured there and they are this this culture centered around military service and they have this long tradition of what would be considered like a very patriotic romantic idea of america the founding fathers you know, red, white, and blue, and all that. But they live this sort of uh, medieval existence now. They're still living in this little protected valley, and they're subsisting on buffalo and elk. 
And side note, the buffalo in the book are there because there is there's this massive herd of buffalo in the valley south of Westcliff. And in this future dystopia that I imagine they they've only fry, thrived for the last, you know, century and they rove back and forth between the plains and the mountains. Um so because of their tactics of war they've had to change and their habits and weapons have had to change too. So they make armor and this armor resembles kind of medieval armor and they use swords and spears. And so when Noah and Evelyn meet this group, it's a very strange culture shock that occurs between the two groups. Uh, the other group you meet on the other side of the valley is the Canyonites. And the Canyonites are a, are a savage tribe, much like the ones from book one. But it's not immediately clear when you meet them. Uh, the only difference is that they speak English, so you can understand the characters in the book. Other than that, they are they are very similar to the Yanos or the the Night Watchers um, in Book One. They're a little more advanced than the the Texan tribes that we met. A uh, little more, but they're still very primitive. And they, they worship stuff like uh, like animals and spirits. And they believe in magic. And they have all these taboos. And and they, they believe in all of these weird kind of uh, primitive things and ideas. And the, the Canyonites and the Valleymen are constantly at war. And it's only punctuated by peace every, every few years. And in the winter, when snows come and snow the passes over and war can't really be waged. So those are the two big groups you meet in book two that become kind of vital to the story. Everyone else you meet in book two is either from New Hope or the GNU. But within that realm, I introduce several new characters so instead of book one where you just have the point of view of Noah and Evelyn and their little group, book two branches out into them plus several other groups. So you have New Hope, you have the GNU, which is like New Hope is Kit Larson, and then the GNU is a couple different characters. And then you have the, the Cowboys from Fort Amarillo get a chapter or two by themselves. And then you have the Valley Men, and then you have the Canyonites, and at the very end, there's the introduction of a final group, which are, are Mormons from Utah, uh, but we'll talk about them more in book three. Uh, the most notable of these new characters that uh, kind of changes the pace of the novel is Judith Ellison, and she is the president of the GNU, and she gives a face as this single antagonist uh, for the GNU. And I start her chapter with a Hillary Clinton quote, which is probably a little too on the nose, but I don't really give a shit. Because I, it kind of, that's who I use to model her character after, if you want to know the truth. And she's this kind of dictator at the head of this oligarchy that is masquerading as a socialist government. Or I guess not really masquerading because, you know, all socialist governments are actually oligarchies and they're ruled by a handful of people, but, you know, I digress. So this character, 
I was a little worried in the beginning because she's almost comically evil, you know, just like Hillary Clinton, at least in my view. But you see everything from her point of view and you get into the mindset of how the GNU views the world. And in her view, she's, of course, not evil at all. In fact, the concept of evil doesn't really exist in her philosophical sense. Like everyone in the GNU, she has this sort of postmodernist idea on philosophy and reality and human nature. And my inspiration for the GNU and the characters in it is influenced by heavily by George Orwell's uh, Ingsoc Party from the novel 1984. I don't go into a lot of details about the inner workings of the party, and I try to focus more on the characters and their points of view and the action and the story, uh, but you do see pieces of it through the characters. There is an inner party, which is the high-ranking oligarchy. Uh, the inner party is ruled and run by a handful of families, and they hold the reins of power, and at the top of that power structure is a a president, and that is Judith Ellison, and she is the president of the GNU. One of her ancestors was the president when the chaos almost destroyed the party, but he escaped, and since the chaos, Ellisons have been presidents in almost an unbroken line of succession since, which means they're basically royalty, which is what happens in almost every kind of communist dictatorship. The power structure turns into a a family business. Uh, And then after the inner party, there is a larger outer party. In the outer party, they do all the bureaucratic legwork, the paper pushing, the education, the civil stuff, the military... And the outer party are obsessed with the propaganda of the party. And it's it's their religion. They fervently believe in the the professed, you know, eco-communist goals of the party. And they believe they're the only ones who can save the earth. Now, of course, the inner party consists of more intelligent people than the outer party. And the inner party understands, unlike the outer party, that the the GNU's highest goal is not any of its actual stated goals. The highest goal of the inner party and the party in general is this absolute and untouchable power. Power is the most important thing, and the ends always justify the means. Uh, The party will do anything to achieve and hold on to power for the sake of having power. And this makes it just like Orwell's Ingsoc party in 1984. In their minds, this absolute godlike power is the only thing that will save the world from humanity, which the party views as like a parasite that is killing its host. Thirdly and finally, within the power of the the party structure is a third and final class. And this third and final class is called the Blue Covers. And they're called the Blue Covers because they all are uniformed in blue coveralls. And that's all they're allowed to wear. 
and they are the the slave class. They are the proletariat. They are the worker class. And this is by far and away the most numerous class in the GNU society. They are the the hammer and the sickle, so to speak. Uh, however, like the glorious communist utopia that the workers were promised, of course, never came to pass, as it never ever does. And now they are quite literally slaves, but they don't they don't call it that, and they probably wouldn't recognize it even if you kind of showed it to them. Uh, to to control the blue covers, each of them wears a trackable collar around their necks. And these collars cannot be removed except by a special device held by military commanders and upper-level upper party members. Uh, the collars are an explosive device, and they can be activated, and they can instantly neutralize any single party any single blue cover or a even a selected group of them. So in this way, the blue covers are kept in line. And it's hinted at in book two that the, the blue covers barely even think about their collars most of the time. And it's been so long since anyone stood up that some of them don't even know what the, what the collars do. Like, only a few of them have ever seen a collar detonated. So it's it's even more the rumor of potential death than the actual knowledge that keeps them in line. Like, they, the party doesn't have to try very hard to keep the blue covers in line. And the blue covers are viewed by the inner and the outer party members with complete apathy. They're they're used the same way that cattle or machinery would be used. And most of the party members don't really have to see them at all, let alone interact with them, uh, because they're kept in separate separate districts than than party members are. Uh, So finally, the title of Tyrants and Savages is is this nod to the people that you meet. You have the the tyranny of the GNU, first off, and then you have the the savagery of humanity that we see through other groups, like the Canyonites especially, and the violence and the war that Noah and Evelyn and their group kind of encounter. Uh, Like book one, it's it's fast-paced and it's pretty dark and violent. But it allows you to see more of the world and kind of take smaller bites of individual storylines. There's not very much of the kind of long, long drawn out waiting to see when the characters are going to get somewhere. And I feel like book one had that. Sometimes you're kind of like just reading to see where Noah and Evelyn are finally going to get somewhere. Book two doesn't have nearly as much of that as book one has. Uh, as far as the writing of it, you can tell that my influences when I was writing book two were a little less Western and a little more military action adventure, you know, future tech, sci-fi stuff. Uh, but the the Western feel is still there and still kind of running through it. 
Uh, also, I start to get a little more philosophical and thoughtful in book two. Book one was strictly just for fun and action. And book two, I I kind of start becoming a more thoughtful writer. And I think more about the things I'm writing about. There's more purpose behind the violence and action of the scenes there's more emotion behind those scenes and the characters than there was in book one. Um, so, next, uh, I'm going to start diving into book two and uploading chapters coming, you know, starting next week. Uh, I will probably not be at, I'll probably not upload book two as quickly as I uploaded book one. Uh, mostly because I want to make sure book two is narrated a little bit better than book one. I kind of rushed through book one because I wanted to get some content out there just for the the podcast page. I wanted there to be, you know, 10, 12 episodes. I wanted to get book one kind of out of my mouth before I could start book two. So I'm going to... I'm going to try to go a little slower, and I'm going to try to make the narrations a little better. I'm honestly a little nervous about book two because there's a lot more accents. And I've got to be honest, I'm not great at accents. You all heard my my British accent once in book one. And book two has a Russian main character. My Russian's not, my Russian accent's not great. But it has a whole bunch of different kind of ethnicities and I'm I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. I can kind of do the Russian, but mm, it's not great. And I know for a fact I can't do uh, anything Asian, or it just ends up sounding uh, exceedingly racist. So I, uh, you know, I'm not really scared of being called a racist, but I also don't want to make you laugh uncontrollably and take you out of the story. So uh, I'm gonna do my best, but. Uh, I'm probably going to go, I don't know, I might go to once a week. When I started the podcast, I I imagined it as a as a once per week podcast. And then when I got to starting book, book one, I just, I wanted to get it out. But with book two, I'll probably take my time a little more. Um, and hopefully by the time I have finished uploading book two, I'll be completely done with book three. Uh, book three is done. I've finished the story. It is nearly the same length as book one and book two, a little bit shorter than book two. Uh, but I I want to make sure I polish it before I put it out there. I mean, book one and book two have been out there in the world, basically, and I have rewritten book one and book two several times in the past eight years. And book three is something that I've I've written book three in the past year. I started book three at the beginning of 2021 and I finished book three as far as just the storyline. I finished the storyline, the first draft of book three on, I don't know, it was probably, it was very close to December, you know, 30, 30th. It was very close to the new year. And it took me one year to write 
And so that means it's been done for a grand total of, you know, 10 days. So I don't want to get too eager to shoot book three out there before I'm I'm certain that it is done. Uh, that being said, I'm not, trust me, I'm not going to take eight years to finish it like I did the first two. I'll definitely have it done by the time I get book two uploaded because it's the thing I'm working on the most now. And I really do want to finish, I want to finish this trilogy. I want to finish this book series and I'm to the point like I started writing again strictly so I could finish this story just so I could start another story. Because I feel like I have uh, uh, I have other stuff, I have more stuff, uh, I maybe even have more important stuff to say, but before I do that, I have to finish this story first because it's what I started. And I damn sure wish I wouldn't have started an entire trilogy. So for anybody out there who is somebody who you know thinks you might want to get into writing, my advice for you is do not start something that is this big and all-encompassing. Please, for the love of God, start by writing short stories and short stories and short stories. For the first decade of your life, write short stories. And then if you're going to go past a short story, write a novella. Do not start a gigantic giant fantasy world that you have to create and write an entire trilogy about because it will kind of stall you out as a writer. But anyways, that's my advice. That's the information on book two. And the next episode of the Capo podcast, I will be uploading chapter one of book two for your enjoyment. I hope you've enjoyed all of this podcast and I thank you for your time. Have a good night.